Hello, this is Hannah at University Archives. In this episode of U of M Radio and Your Historic Dial, I wanted to highlight one of the KUOM collection's most contemporary programs, Science Lives, Women and Minorities in the Sciences. In the late 1980s, research pointed towards a significant drop in students seeking bachelor degrees in the sciences, with one estimate stating by the year 2000, the United States would be facing a shortage of 430,000 degreed students in those fields. We used to be the leader in technology advances. We used to always be in the forefront, and everybody was trying very hard to catch up with us. There is a sense of urgency among scientists. We now recognize that we are increasingly a country populated by underrepresented minorities, and that uh, this is a potential great source of potential talent. I guess the most comparable industry might be in the steel industry, where the focus of the production and creative energies shifted from our country to other countries. In biology, we learned that procreation is essential for continuation of a species. And unless we help develop a cadre of individuals who come behind us, a great deal is going to be lost. The danger is that the quality of life, as we know it, will begin to slide. The danger is that our leadership, position of leadership, as a world power, will be compromised. And the thing I regret very much is how late we come around to the recognition of the crisis we're really facing. The nation faces a shortage of scientists. In 1989, spurred on by faculty in the University of Minnesota College of Biological Sciences and Institute of Technology, KOM program developer Marion Watson wrote an extensive grant seeking funding for a program that would address this deficit of scientists and offer a solution, specifically appeal to and aid minorities and women in the sciences who had historically been underrepresented. The grant states, if changes do not occur and the nation experiences a significant drop in its pool of scientists, then not only will the fields of science be adversely affected, but so will the myriad issues before the nation, AIDS, energy, national security, which have a scientific base. This point is expanded on in the first episode of Science Lives. We know that we lose most kids from science and engineering in the first six years of school because by the time they hit junior high, they've already decided whether they like science and math or not. So we don't have very much a window of opportunity here. We have to do something right now. Marshall Lakes Matthias from the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. We're talking about very large numbers here. We're talking about being short 700,000 scientists and engineers. That's a huge number of people with jobs sitting there needing to be done, research needing to be done. We simply won't have the people to do the thinking to come up with new technologies, to improve them, uh, to come up with ideas of how do we address problems like AIDS, how do we address problems like uh, acid rain, what, what do we do about these things? If you don't have enough people to work on those problems, you certainly aren't going to come up with solutions to them. Wouldn't it be terrible if we came up with a solution, a way to treat AIDS, and yet we didn't have enough engineers to work on how do I take this thing I found in the laboratory and manufacture it with high quality and be able to distribute it? What a terrible thing those kinds of things are. We recently found out and really came up with which gene in the human genome causes cystic fibrosis. Well, how terrible to sit on that kind of knowledge and not have anybody who can take that and do further research for how do we treat kids with cystic fibrosis. And yet those are the kinds of things we're facing. Um, if we slow down, how many more things are we going to miss like that? 
How many of those things wouldn't have been done if we hadn't had scientists and engineers already working on those problems? That's what we're going to be facing, always being one step behind, further and further, and not even knowing the solutions that we're missing. Falling behind as far as national competitiveness, in terms of economics, national economy. Uh, we're also talking about falling behind just generally on quality of life issues. Simple things, things like VCRs, simple things like a microwave oven. I mean, all those things came out of science and technology, and those are just conveniences. We tend to forget things like electricity all those things that run the machines that help us diagnose cancer and help us treat people for cancer and help us make sure that, that kids get well, things like penicillin, all those things came out of science and engineering research. Those are the kinds of things we don't want to slip on. It was clear that educational institutions needed to reach a more diverse base of students in their earliest years. Science education was not yet given the spotlight it has today and, as you will hear, some educators failed to spark any curiosity towards science, or they underestimated their students. The interviewees in the first episode explained from their own experiences how early education has a huge impact on future scientists, and how a student's individual circumstances affect the kind of education they receive. Let's just take the state of California, where we have a huge migrant population of Hispanics who pick the fields. And this population of people, for example, migrate within a year because the fruit or the vegetables are picked in one part of the country at one time. They're picked up and go on another place. If you put yourself in a situation where within one year period you had three different teachers at that very critical elementary stage, it just is very detrimental. This often happens in science. It was a serendipitous situation where a professor, he opened his laboratory for a group of us. Once I got into the laboratory, I realized that... First of all, that we put on, that I put on my pants the same way anyone who I thought was very uh, successful in college because, it, you know, we were able to do these things in the laboratory. And uh, it just opened up many options to be able to have hands-on experience, I think, to demystify science because that's why science is so uh, scary to so many people. They think it requires a talent uh, that is not given to everyone. And uh, I think people would be surprised that if they were given the opportunity to just to begin having some experience in the laboratory that would open doors. Dwight Gornow, an IBM engineer who grew up on a Chippewa reservation in North Dakota, explains that despite the lack of encouragement Native American students can receive, he relied on his heritage of scientific achievements to drive himself forward. Primarily, the expectations that are set very early, and the teachers have to be capable. The teachers have to be capable that School system's got to create the right kind of environment. I mean, it's hard to have a chemistry class if you don't have a laboratory. Dwight Gorno is the chair of the Board of ACES, the Society of American Indians in Science and Engineering, and has degrees in electrical engineering and physics. He belongs to the Turtle Mountain Chippewa tribe and grew up on a small reservation in North Dakota. Gorno is a senior engineer at IBM. He began there in the early 60s and worked on the early development of computer systems. We were switching over from vacuum tube technology to transistor technology. And I got involved in the first design of the floppy disk. Gorno is the only American Indian engineer in his immediate work environment, but he calls on a scientific heritage. American Indians have made significant contributions in science, you know, whether they're in the civil engineering field with dams, with canals, with different kinds of, you know, architectural construction. We look in the health fields and, and American Indians had many, many medicines and many cures. 
I mean, we can just keep going on because in the field of agriculture, probably about 40% of the world's agricultural products have a base in the American Indian population. One of the main goals of Science Lives was to provide nascent scientists still in the early stages of schooling with role models who could provide a successful example and take on the hard work of blazing a trail for future generations. The women interviewed next point out that while, that while it is crucial to be competitive and ambitious in one's work, female and minority students are often tasked with proving themselves to a greater degree than their counterparts, an attitude that can be detrimental to scientific collaboration and innovation. About six weeks into my graduate program, I was in a, a course that was traditionally reserved for second-year students, but I had passed all of the preliminary qualifying examinations. And at our first examination in giving the uh, test back, I scored pretty well. I got about a 91 or 92. And as the professor gave me back my paper, he gave me this look, and I guess this was supposed to be praise, and he said, well, you really do know what you're talking about, don't you? And that's the kind of attitude I encountered, not overt, but still that lack of belief and understanding that if a person learned chemistry at a black institution, they learn chemistry because there's no such thing as black chemistry or green chemistry or red chemistry. It's just chemistry. Many minority scientists tell similar stories, that they had to prove themselves in ways others aren't asked to do. It keeps you on edge. It uh, encourages you to continue to excel and essentially not to let your guard down. That's good because you always know that it's there and you continually push yourself. But it's bad because it dissipates some energy that otherwise might be put into some creative action. And I guess minority scientists hope that by doing this and being good role models that the students that come behind or the scientists that come behind won't have to dissipate that energy in doing just that. Claire Woodward, now a professor of biochemistry at the University of Minnesota, began graduate school in 1963. I think I got there just about the time that things were beginning to change. By 1973, the kinds of attitudes that I experienced in graduate school were illegal. That process of doing science, trying to find out something brand new about nature, requires a critical feedback with other colleagues. Women are excluded from that critical collegial feedback cycle of criticize idea, criticize idea, so that you can refine your ideas and uh, advance your hypotheses and advance your science. And you only do that with other people. Nobody ever does that alone. Woodward thinks women are excluded because they don't fit the social expectations of most male scientists. The aggressive young man is the ideal prototype for science. You know, get in there and have your ideas and push ahead. For a woman to behave that way, first of all, gets her characterized with all the bad kinds of words that are used uh, to characterize women and uh, gets her excluded. Science Lives was distributed nationally through NPR and was also produced in cassette form for use in schools and libraries. It was advertised in several science and education publications, and the producers received inquiries from around the country on how to get copies of the show. The first two episodes form a documentary on the shortage of scientists and new models of science education, but the bulk of the programs consist of interviews with such scientific luminaries as Mae Jemison, the first African-American woman in space, seismologist Karen McNally, and former Secretary of Health Louis Sullivan. That's all we have for this episode and this month. Next time, we'll be celebrating the Guthrie Theater's 54th anniversary with some thoughts from its founder, Sir Tyrone Guthrie. Thanks for listening. 
The U of M Radio on your Historic Dial podcast is produced every other week for your enjoyment. Subscribe or download on iTunes or Google Play so you don't miss another moment of Historic Minnesota Radio. If you enjoy our clips and want to hear or learn more, go to www.lib.umn.edu slash uarchives and search KUOM in the collections guides. Digitization of University Archives recordings was financed in part with funds provided by the State of Minnesota from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund through the Minnesota Historical Society.